sort of the prologue for our study in Jesus' greatest sermon, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Follow as I read verses 10 through 12 from Matthew chapter 5. This is the final beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When I read the words, persecuted for righteousness' sake... I think of several extreme circumstances that Christians have undergone throughout the centuries. I think about the prophets who were sawn in two, as Hebrews 11 talks about, those who were beaten and killed. I think of how the Apostle Paul had his head lopped off after his ministry was finished. In the New Testament times, I think of the martyrs like Stephen. I think of Jesus Christ who died on the cross those who were persecuted for righteousness' sake. I think of the early church in AD 60 under the tyranny of Roman Emperor, Emperor Nero, who tried to snuff out Judaism and lumped in Christianity to boot and basically would go after Christians and wrap them in tar pitch and suspend them on poles and light them and burn them to light his palace gardens, trying to destroy the momentum of the early church. The Apostle Peter's words took on new meaning to me when I understood this. 1 Peter 4.12, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Persecution is not foreign to the Christian, and it's come in severe forms to many Christians, even modern missionaries like Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, who sacrificed their lives being slaughtered by cannibals in Ecuador, the Aka Indians that killed them, or Stan Dale, a lesser-known name. He was highlighted in a book by Don Richardson, uh, a book called The Lords of the Earth. He was an Australian missionary who ministered in Irangira to the Indonesian people uh, of the Yali tribes groups. And basically, he stood in a riverbank so his family, wife, and children could escape and absorbed 50 arrows before he died, for the faith. There are countless no-name missionaries and churchmen and churchwomen, believers who have died for the faith or who have sacrificed much. I heard of a girl from the Master's College, uh, a student there who had to flee her home, uh, she becoming a Christian in an Islamic environment. She'd had her arm broken by her uncle in some sort of exchange that was very violent. I mean, these things happen today. I heard of a missionary, uh, or actually an American pastor, who was on the mission field in the Soviet Union, who was uh, blindfolded and brought into a back room, and basically these persecutors took a knife up and down his back to threaten him. Perhaps you think of your religious freedoms when you hear a verse like this, being persecuted for righteousness sake. You think of how our government and society could could go bad and all of a sudden our religious freedom, the freedom to worship like this morning could be taken from us, how we might have to go underground. And that's not too far-fetched if you look at Europe and how things are digressing there, just one generation away from, from that kind of persecution. But as I looked at this verse 
these verses in particular and this phrase in verse 10, I had to expand my definition of what it means to be persecuted for righteousness sake. Because Jesus' words here are not just for kind of celebrity martyrs, people who are famous who died in the faith. It's not just for, for people who are persecuted in violent countries and difficult situations. It's for every single Christian. Every single Christian needs to absorb these words and live this out. It's true. I I googled American persecution or persecution in America this week and a bunch of hits came up and it said, you know, persecution is coming. It's coming. Look out, you know, and and several things that I could have clicked on and absorbed all kinds of time with, which I didn't. But but these verses here say that persecution is here and now for America and for any Christian who's ever lived at any time. I had to expand my definition, and Jesus' teaching here did just that thing, because these verses are to comfort you in your life, in your situation. Now, if you're taking notes, here's a header. Jesus' teachings answer three questions regarding Christian persecution. Jesus answers three questions here regarding persecution. And the first question he answers is, why should you expect persecution? Why should you expect persecution? First of all, let me just point out that verse 10 assumes that you will be persecuted as a believer. Just like all of the Beatitudes assume that these things are part of your life. The first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. You're expected as a believer to have a dependence on the Lord and to know your a child of his kingdom. Verse 4, you're expected to mourn over your sin and be comforted. Verse 5, you're expected to be meek. You're expected to exude sustained humility and, and inherit the earth, which is heaven. Verse 6, you're expected as a Christian. You're affirmed. You're approved as someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. You're someone who naturally will have an appetite for the Lord and his will. And you'll be satisfied. Verse 7, you're expected to be merciful and receive mercy. Verse 8, to be pure in heart. Verse 9, to be a peacemaker. These are just qualities of the Christian life. And as you have these qualities, the word blessed means that God is approving you and confirming you that you are his child. You are these things. And so verse 10 just continues on and says, you know what? Blessed or approved as a Christian are you. When you are persecuted, for righteousness sake. The the phrasing assumes that it's going to happen. You will be persecuted for being righteous, and then there's going to be great blessing from that. There's going to be affirmation. And the affirmation is that yours is the kingdom of heaven. And so we are to expect and assume that we will be persecuted. The word persecution means, literally, to be pursued. In other words, as a Christian, when you follow after Jesus, when you pursue Jesus, you are going to be pursued. You are going to be um, sort of followed after by people who don't like you. People who wouldn't have liked Jesus and his temperament or his choices or his righteousness won't also like you. That's the point. You pursue Jesus and you're going to be pursued in one form or fashion at one level or another. First Peter 4 again. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Don't be surprised. 
John 15, Jesus said, Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You say, well, yeah, but I'm an American. I'm an American. This is a safe haven. I'm not going to undergo persecution. But Jesus's words say, you will be persecuted because you're pursuing righteousness, because you're living on Jesus's account. Verse 11 follows on with that. You're living like Jesus. You're pursuing what Jesus loves and it's going to bring persecution. Remember, righteousness here is not some sort of moralism. It's not raw moral obedience. It's like what verse 6 says in the Beatitudes. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. You, when you became born again, just like a newborn baby being born for the first time, you are longing for, you're hungering and thirsting for something, and that's righteousness. Psalm 42, you're like a deer in the wilderness that's starving, that's thirsting and panting after water to be satisfied. That's what we are pursuing. And as a Christian, when we pursue righteousness, people don't like it. People don't like it. Verse 11, they will say all kinds of mean things against you. At the end of the verse, it says, on my account. In other words, you are living and I am living as Jesus's proxy. Now, Jesus is in heaven and he's everywhere because he's God. He's at the right hand of the Father, the God-man. And Jesus is living his life through us here on earth. And we walk around and we are continuing his ministry that he had here for three years, throughout the years, for Jesus. For Jesus. So the things that we say and do sound like Jesus. I think a lot of people say, you know, look, if Jesus were here and he was preaching the gospel, life would be uh, happening. People would be being saved. More people would be saved. There'd be a greater ministry that would be happening all around us. And I say, not true. If they rejected the words of Jesus when he said them here, they'll reject them when we say them as well. If they accepted the words of Jesus when he was here doing his ministry and his miracles, it means that God was opening their hearts and they were receiving Jesus. Well, we live the same ministry as if he's living it here on earth at the same time. 2 Timothy 3.12 says it this way, All who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We're living a life that's godly in Jesus Christ, and it's going to bring on persecution. It's going to, be, it's going to happen. Galatians 6.17, the Apostle Paul, he put it this way, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. You know, every time Paul was whipped, he was whipped because he was acting as Jesus' proxy. Had Jesus been there, they would have whipped him too. Every time he was stoned, he was stoned because he was living for righteousness. He was speaking truth and righteousness, and people didn't like it. Every time he was mocked, every time he was beaten, it was all because he was living for Jesus. Why? You remember Jesus, he bothered people. He bothered people. Now, he wasn't a bothersome person. He just was righteous. And when he would talk to the Pharisees, he would try to get to their heart and say, look, you don't live for God through external obedience. That's not how it's done. It's having a heart of righteousness. He worked with them from the inside, and they didn't like it. The legalist. Remember the rich young ruler, he said, what do I need to do? I've obeyed all of the law. What else do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, sell everything and follow me. 
It exposed his heart. And he didn't like it, so he left. He left. And many people, the Pharisees included, they conspired against Jesus. They reviled him. They spoke lies against him. They twisted the things that he said. And ultimately, they killed him. That's what we undergo. Now, oftentimes, when you are reviled, or people speak ill of you, or make something up about you, it doesn't lead to violence. But that doesn't mean persecution isn't happening in your life even today. And I just think these words are for you. And some of you are aware of the fact that you are being maligned as a believer. Even for the mundane things of life. You know, perhaps the choices that you make, the entertainment choices, things you do or things you don't do, things you talk about. You know, someone's telling a dirty joke and you go, you know, I don't want to hear that. Or you walk away from that. Or somebody's gossiping. You go, I don't really want to talk about that. Or, you know, you're, you're just making choices and people don't like it because it's, it's exposing their sin right in front of them, right? Just by the things that you do or don't do. Or you say, have you ever considered this from the word of God? And then all of a sudden, whoa, all bets are off. You say something like, yeah, you know, I actually, uh, yeah, I know that you're having this sort of multicultural debate, but I believe there's only one way to heaven. Well, that's kind of narrow-minded, you know, right? I, I, wait, you know, I, I actually, I know you're talking about evolution and, and this documentary you saw, but, you know, I, I just believe it was all, it all happened in six days or, you know, that God's the creator and, and he did it all and we didn't really come from primordial soup and, you know, we, I, I just don't believe in that. I believe in creation. Wow, you're, you know, you're, you're a weird, narrow-minded person if you believe that. What do you believe in? Fairy tales, right? That's right up there with Jack and the Beanstalk. What are you talking about, right? Eternal hell. You know, I, I believe in eternal hell. I believe that people either go to heaven forever or they are suffering and burning in hell forever. That just sounds very narrow-minded to people. And you know what? That is pursuing righteousness. That's standing um, for Jesus on his account. And it makes people uncomfortable. It does. And it brings persecution. And, And that's why Jesus puts right on the heels of this statement that you are blessed when you're persecuted. You're affirmed as a Christian or approved as a Christian being persecuted for righteousness sake, he puts a promise on the end of that saying, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you know you're the real thing when you're persecuted in this way. I'm not saying we should pursue persecution and we should try to wear it like a badge and say, yeah, you know, I really, you know, started this fight and and this is making me happy and I'm deriving some sort of strange joy out out of being persecuted. No, it's where you're speaking the truth in love, you're humbly pursuing people, You're willing to take a stand. You're willing to stand on the truth and people don't like it. And you know what happens in your heart? Well, you're sad because they don't like it, but you're you're emboldened in your faith and you realize I am the real thing. Like I know I'm a Christian and and I know when I got saved and I know I got baptized and I know I'm part of the flock, but I just in this moment, it's clicking. You know, the persecution is coming and it's supposed to. And I know that I am a believer. Jesus is saying that the conflict is worthwhile because there's approval there. You're authenticated through the suffering. Just like verse 3, when you're poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know you're a kingdom citizen, not just kingdom that awaits you, but you're a kingdom citizen today. Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not just external feasting, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the first question that's answered from this text is why should you expect persecution? 
Well, it's assumed in this teaching. It's part of the Beatitudes. It's going to come. And secondly, the second question is, what does this persecution look like? What does it look like? Does it have to be imprisonment? Does it have to be um, being ostracized from your family? Does it, does it have to be those things? Not necessarily. Persecution is now in the USA for you in your life as you take a stand for Jesus. And Jesus does not limit persecution to physical suffering. And predominantly in verse 11, he's talking about when people slander you or malign you for the faith. That's what he's talking about in verse 11. It's not limiting things to political rights or activism or religious freedoms. This is talking about when people want to take your character out. Why? So that they can undo your message. They want to take you out. And verse 11 is is so telling because it's two steps of ugliness. Look at this. They persecute you by reviling you. In other words, they slander your character. They talk you down first and persecute you, which could be physical violence. And then they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. What is he saying? Well, they start with the material they can work with. Okay, yeah, I've I've seen this in in his life and her life. And wow, can you believe that he or she did this or didn't do that? And, you know, let's bring that, that up and talk about that. And, you know, I think that person's character is just, you know, lame-o. And then if that doesn't work, then they make things up about you falsely. They accuse you or utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. So if it's, it's one thing for them to twist the material that they have to work with, but when they run out of that material, they have to make up more against you. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's the insidious nature of this kind of persecution, the knifing to the heart that goes on. You know, there are many situations in your life where you perhaps will have to give up a promotion or give up an opportunity because you have integrity. Where perhaps someone says, look, you just need to look the other way on this business deal. You know, I know it's going to hurt someone or, or, or rip somebody off or let's not go there. Let's not talk about that. But just look the other way. And as a believer, you say, you know what? I'm not going to look the other way. I'm not going to participate in that. I'm either going to distance myself from it or I'm going to leave. And that's persecution. That's persecution. Perhaps you've been snubbed socially before where they say, hey, come over here. Look, we're just going to the bars, you know, just to hang out and and have a good time. But you know that it's party living, that people are living licentiously and that it would be a poor testimony to do it that way in that time, in that scenario with that people. And you just say, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to participate. And then all of a sudden your opportunities become more limited. Your acceptance is on the ice and and you're kind of snubbed around the office. I know that, you know, there are many of you who perhaps have been married to an unbeliever or are married to an unbeliever. Or perhaps you have unbelieving teenagers in your home and you're, you're dealing with persecution moments where people say things or don't say things. They, they make, you know, snide remarks at your faith or try to tear you down or discourage you for going to church or for giving money to the Lord's work or for anything or for participating in sacrificing in service. But you have to live with those kinds of things. And Jesus says that you're blessed in the midst of this kind of persecution when they revile you. These stages are deep and they do cut to the quick. 
I was just thinking in church history of Nero, again, the emperor, how he lied about the church. He said that the church was conspiring to set Rome on fire, kind of put the blame there, twisting Christian prophecy where they were saying that the world's going to be burned in the end. And they were saying, Nero was saying that the love feasts where they were just coming together for their potluck suppers, they were really uh, orgies and filled with sexual immorality. And they were accusing the church of cannibalism because they were participating in the Lord's table. Nero was blaspheming the body and symbol of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, saying that you're eating those things, so it must be cannibalism, all to discredit Christianity to undo the message. And not only will we be persecuted individually, if we take a stand for Christ and the gospel as Anchorage Grace Church, you know what's going to happen? Persecution. Persecution. People will try to undo our reputation to undo the message. That's just what Jesus says that we are supposed to expect and to endure. There's a compassionate turning point from verses 10 to 11 that I want you to note. Jesus in verse 10 is teaching the eighth beatitude, that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And then in verse 11, he narrows his gaze on the people. The crowds that had swarmed around him on the mountainside where he was sitting down to teach these Beatitudes, he looks into their eyes and says in verse 11 directly to their hearts, Blessed are you when others revile you. He turns things from a principle that he's stating in verse 10, Blessed are those, to a personal pastoral note where he says, Blessed are you. You. It's as if Jesus in his mind thought, okay, here's the principle. It's coming for the church in general. But wait a minute. These people are going to be persecuted. You are going to be persecuted. And blessed are you when you are persecuted. Persecution hurts. This kind of wounding is very difficult to endure. And I think Jesus just looked right into their eyeballs and wanted to minister and pastor to them in a very meaningful, personal way. It's the pastoral ministry that you need in your life when you are maligned and slandered. The church is to be a safe haven. It's to be a a, a place of rest where you can find refuge and community and fellowship and share your heart with other believers when you are persecuted in this way. You need each other. And Jesus knew that. Psalm 23 makes the same kind of lyrical shift Uh, where David writes the most famous psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I mean, the point of the psalm is, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't need anything but the Lord. I shall not want. I'm in want of nothing because God is my shepherd. But David notes the fact that there are going to be hard times in life. And verse 4 is this lyrical shift where he moves from the third person to second person, just like Jesus did. And he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Second person, you are with me. Jesus is saying, I am with you in the persecution. Like David is saying, you are with me when I'm in the dark valley. The dark valley, by the way, 
is the most vulnerable spot you can be in, in that sort of shepherding moment where you're walking along either as a sheep or shepherd, and you've got predators above you, either robbers or wild animals that could stalk you. And as you walk through that dark period, God promises personally that he's with you. And that's what Jesus is promising here in verse 10. Or 11. When, blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you. Look at the repetition there. He really is pointing to the fact that these are dangerous waters to be in, but Jesus is there with you. Beatitudes aren't axioms to be followed. They're not just truisms that are good proverbs for your life. This is a personal touch of Jesus where he is saying, I'm with you through the fire. It's like, you know, the, those who put themselves into the fire. Remember Daniel chapter 4, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how they went into the fire, and, and Nebuchadnezzar said, you know, look, just bow down to this idol, and you don't have to go in. And basically, if I can paraphrase, they said, look, we're, we're going to be bound, and we're going to be either saved by God as we jump into this fire, but even if he does not save us, we're going to go. And then when they jumped and went into the fire, there was a fourth person in the fire with them. And I think that was Jesus Christ with them in the fiery furnace. Slander comes directly and it also comes indirectly. And if you don't think you are being slandered for the faith, but you are living for Christ's righteousness and you are living on Jesus' account, guess what? You probably are being persecuted. At some level, you probably are experiencing persecution. I remember one time, uh, this is kind of a lighter version of persecution, um, but I went to Christian college after having become a Christian my senior year and I had you know, witnessed and shared my faith with different ones, different ones in the surfer community who were around me, who had party lifestyles and things like that. And I just said, you know, I'm not associating with you anymore in that way, but I love Jesus and I found him and I want you to know Jesus Christ. And I just shared generically and then went off to Christian college. And I got a phone call a few months in from a friend of mine who also had become a believer with me my senior year. And he said, you know, I went into my community college back at Virginia Beach. I went into my classroom and this guy was saying, there's this guy, Jeff Cross, and you know him. And he keeps blabbing his faith all around and he's, he's trying to cram Jesus Christ down our throats. I'd never said anything about Jesus to this person ever. I had nothing to do with him. I just, you know. He had just heard about me sharing my faith. And the real hero of the story was my friend who took up for me. But really, when he was taking up for me, he was putting himself out there and saying, I love Jesus Christ face to face. Putting himself out there. And that's what happens to believers. That's how Jesus is saying that you can know that you're authentic, that you're the real thing. Because you're persecuted as if. Jesus were here, you're here, and you're persecuted in his stead. Again, if Jesus were here, and if he were living in righteousness, he would be persecuted again by unbelievers. And in the same way, we don't escape this kind of persecution. Turn in your Bibles over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is all about persecution. It's about suffering and submission. And one of the great pastoral points in 1 Peter is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. It's a word to the wives, wives that are undergoing persecution from their unbelieving husbands. 
And what strikes me isn't how crystal clear verse 1 is of chapter 3, but it's all of the preceding verses in chapter 2 that lead up to chapter 3. Uh, what Peter does is he, he points to Jesus Christ and all of his suffering and all of his persecution on the cross as a prelude to the council in verse 1 of chapter 3. You've got to think all about Jesus and all about him being reviled first before you can be ready to apply this kind of pastoral counsel in chapter 3, verse 1. Look at um, 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you have been called, which is suffering, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Watch this. When he was reviled, same word as Matthew 5, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So he didn't, he didn't bark back when people were reviling him, when they were smacking him in the face. He didn't say anything back. He just entrusted himself to his father. He bore our sins on the tree and died on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and be healed. We were straying sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. All of that is prelude. All of that beautifully rich gospel content is what is supposed to be on the mind and heart of, an, of a spouse, of a believing wife in the home when she is being dogged day in and day out by her husband. That's what's supposed to be in her heart, is the gospel, is Jesus. He went through this, and so I'm going through this. He responded by not reviling in return, so I'm not supposed to respond by reviling in return. Look at verse 1. Likewise, it ties all of that gospel content together. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. All of that... Data, all that gospel data informs verse 1 in such a powerful way. You can turn back to Matthew 5. I remember sitting in uh, at a former church I was a part of watching a pastor undergo severe persecution, verbal persecution, where he just sat there. And this guy who had been counseled by this pastor, this pastor had counseled he and his wife, uh, you know, hour upon hour about their marriage and how they were falling apart, how there was abuse in the home. And then this guy came into our elders meeting and just laced into this pastor, barraging him with all kinds of false accusations and twisting things that he had said. And we just sat there and watched this go on. And, and it was a verbal assault where basically this guy was, you know, showing his own sin by exposing more of it as he was assaulting this pastor but at the end of that time, the pastor just looked at us after this person was dismissed and he said, all I could think of during this whole time of being accused is 2 Timothy 2.24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. You know, like me, you may be sitting there and wondering, you know, I haven't gone through a lot of persecution in my lifetime. I mean, perhaps you have, but maybe you're sitting there and saying, I really haven't, and I don't know how to totally relate to this. Why, why am I not uh, an easy target? Why isn't the persecution coming on in my life? Well, maybe we don't look enough like Jesus in our culture. Maybe we don't talk enough like him. Maybe, maybe our doctrine, watch this, is not 
clearly articulated enough to be offensive. I think a lot of times we make it vague and it's a, it's a protection. Maybe we fit in a little bit too much. Luke 6 um, is where Jesus said, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. I think sometimes, on the other hand, we confuse persecution that's superficial and not Christian persecution for persecution for our preferences, maybe our educational preferences. You know, I'll go here or I'll do this and people get upset or we ramp things up and and they're not real hills to die on whatsoever in the first place. But probably, for the most part, we don't undergo persecution because our gospel message is not clear enough to offend people in the first place. And I'm not saying let's go pursue persecution or pick fights, but let's be clear about what we believe and leave the results to the Lord. Oftentimes, when we're clear with the gospel, you know what happens? People either persecute you or they believe. As the old Southern preacher said, you know, you you say the gospel and you either duck or pucker. You either duck or pucker. I know, I'm sorry. We'll just leave that one in the lower 48. All right. Uh, um, Verse 11 says uh, that you're persecuted on account of Jesus. You know, I was, I came in contact with a book that, you know, it's, it's relatively unpopular. You probably haven't heard of it. It's called The Shack. (laughs) A lot of people have heard of this book. Three million copies of it have been splashed all around the evangelical um, culture, and it's a number one New York Times bestseller. So it's, it's beloved even outside of Christian culture. And I've wondered, you know, it's an allegory. It's, it's not meant to be hardline, straightforward theology. It's telling a story to comfort someone who had lost his daughter. And I, I understand all of that, and I know not to take things too far when you just read something as Christian fiction. But I think when I, when I saw three million copies in New York Times number one bestseller, you either have to think, man, this is a revival moment for Christianity, or it's something that has been made so palatable that it's not offensive. It's as if the gospel edges are sandpapered down, and it's just palatable that you can take it or leave it. And I was reading a quote where, you know, this one character, Mac, he's the main character, is talking to the Trinity, specifically Jesus, And Jesus says this, those who love me have come from every system that exists. They were Buddhists or Mormons, Baptists or Muslims, some are Democrats, some Republicans, and many don't vote or are not part of any Sunday morning or religious institutions. It's kind of an anti-institutional sentiment throughout the book, but I'm okay with with that so far. He says, I have followers who were murderers and many who were self-righteous. Some were bankers and bookies, Americans and Iraqis, Jews and Palestinians. So they're coming out of all kinds of backgrounds. Then he says, I have no desire to make them Christian. Now I know probably his point is that a Christian label doesn't save you, but it just seems like, hey, let's make it so vague, you know? Let's just remove the title of Christian. Well, I have a problem with that because the Bible talks about believers being Christians. So, I, you know, I like that label. Um, it says, but I do want to join them. So I have no desire to make them Christian, but I want to join them in their transformation into sons and daughters of my papa. So God wants to meet them right where they are, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican, whether they're a Baptist or a Muslim. I just want to go right into the middle of them. And then Mac astutely says in the story, does that mean all roads will lead to you? 
That's a good question because the way that he kind of led up to this kind of makes you have to read it a couple times to see that he's not saying that. And Jesus responds, not at all. Most roads don't lead anywhere. So it's just a vague kind of broad statement. What does it mean? What it does mean is that I will travel any road to find you. I understand that God pursues us and he saves us in that way and that there's compassion there. But, but the vagaries that are, that, are, that are mounted up in this story can muddy the gospel and blur it and make it difficult to grab onto. It's a postmodern gospel where, you, where it's hard to see the propositional truths of the gospel, where you have to repent and believe and follow Jesus Christ. And there's a narrow road and you're leaving behind your false religion to follow Jesus. I mean, that's the gospel. And, and this is more just a vague, palatable thing. I mean, think about Mars Hill, where, where Paul was on Mars Hill in Acts 17. Think about if he took sort of a, a shack-like approach in his gospel presentation, you know, really kind of just sanding it down. You know, he could say, you know, I, I was walking in here and I, I was bothered a little bit by your idolatry. I mean, the Bible says he was stirred greatly. I was kind of bothered by it, but, you know, I've got my idol, you've got your idol, and God will meet you right where you are with your idol. I mean, he, he'll find you where you are and kind of rescue you and bring him into yourself. You don't have to call yourself Christian. No problem. And you, you don't really have to be part of any sort of organized church setting. Just, just come. Instead, this is how Paul gave the gospel in Acts 17. This is the crescendo statement. And it really just was striking. I mean, when you kind of read it, read it in the shack version, and then you read the text, it's just a contrast. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's so much gospel, propositional, doctrinal truth there. Think about it. That's authoritative. He commands all men everywhere to repent. Authority to turn away from your sin. And he's fixed a day where judgment is coming. And all is vindicated because Jesus rose from the dead. This is the gospel. What happened when Paul gave the gospel in this way? Watch. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. People are cut to the quick when they hear the gospel in a straightforward way. We need to speak the truth in love, but we need to to say it clearly enough to offend people or that God would redeem people through the message. Watch this. Some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and the Areopagite and the woman named Damaris and others with them. There were those who believed. So the question so far that this text asks and answers is why should you expect persecution? Well, it's assumed that it's part of your Christian life. Just like all the Beatitudes, you will be persecuted. Secondly, what does persecution look like? Well, it looks like being slandered. It looks like being maligned, being falsely accused. And then thirdly, how should you respond to persecution? Verse 12. What's your response supposed to be? You ready? Rejoice and be glad. Stop there. These are commands. They're given in the imperatival tense. 
You're supposed to rejoice and be glad when it's like this. You know, it's oxymoronic. It doesn't really make sense that we're supposed to be exulting over our difficulty in some sort of like masochistic way where we want the pain to come upon. It's not like that. We rejoice and we're glad because we see heaven in a clearer way. It says, for your reward is great in heaven. It's as if when the persecution comes on you, your eyesight becomes more clear of heaven. And you see and know that you have a bountiful reward waiting for you. It's a harvest that's plentiful, is what these words mean. Heaven is the reward, by the way. It's not like you get more persecution, so you get more jewels in your crown and all of that. Heaven or the the crown of righteousness is a laurel wreath that is symbolic of when people would run marathon races and they would win and receive a laurel wreath. That's the Stephanos or the crown of righteousness that we receive, saying that heaven itself is the reward. I know that some people will receive greater affirmation. You know, they'll probably be cum laude, magna cum laude, summa cum laude. I'm just, I'm just glad to be there. I, I, it, that's how I was in high school graduation. Any graduation I've ever been in, I'm just going, wow, I'm just glad to be in the lineup, dude. You know, and, and uh, that's how it will be for us in heaven. We will just be thankful to be there. And when persecution comes on us and when we know that things are clicking and that we are real Christians, we can rejoice and be glad. It just ties together that way. We find ourselves at the, verse, at the end of verse 12 in the legacy of the prophets who were persecuted before us. We stand in their lineage, in their heritage, and we rejoice. Just like the apostles did in Acts 5 when the Sanhedrin and the high priests questioned the apostles and they strictly charged them not to teach in Jesus' name. They were saying, look, you're, you're going to bring Jesus' blood back upon us, so don't witness about Christ. And Peter said, verse 29 of Acts 5, we must obey God rather than men. Sorry, we're, we're going to keep preaching. And the religious leaders were so afraid that there was going to be sort of an uprising against them that they let them go for a little while and they slandered them and talked against them. And then they called them back in verse 40. They called them in and they beat them. So there's persecution. And then they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they responded by rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. When you're persecuted for Jesus, for righteousness' sake, on his account, do you think to yourself, man, God counted me worthy to be his child and to stand in for Jesus as his proxy. I get to bear the marks of Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. We get to undergo persecution and we rejoice in it. Suffering is hard. Suffering is difficult. We need to rejoice with those who rejoice. We need to cry with people in church when they're undergoing this kind of persecution. We need to be there for each other, but we need to obey these commands and rejoice nevertheless. Not be depressed, but exude joy. All right, here's a few ways to apply this message. First of all, don't waste your persecution. Don't waste your persecution. If you're going through something, look at it as God's plan for your life. Do you view it as God's plan for your life? Do you believe it's redemptive? Do you believe he is sanctifying you through 
when people say mean things about you, even when someone says something that's not true? Do you believe that's part of your progressive sanctification? We should. Number two, don't pursue persecution. Persecution will pursue you. We shouldn't be looking for it. We don't don't want to wear it as a badge of honor. Uh, We don't want to live to avoid it. We need to expect it. You know, do you wear it as a badge? Do you live to avoid it? Or are you kind of going, man, I just don't want this to happen in my American culture. I want to keep it safe. Well, we want, to, we want to pursue righteousness and expect that it will come. Number three, make sure your persecution is on account of Jesus. And we've talked about this. We shouldn't be trying to prop up our preferences to be persecuted. Almost sounds like a nursery rhyme. Prop up your preferences to be persecuted. Say that three times over really fast. We shouldn't. We shouldn't make issues that aren't the cross issues that we're persecuted for. We need to be persecuted for righteousness. And, uh, and we need to be able to bring the gospel in a clear way and make the gospel the point of persecution. Number four, take verbal persecution seriously. Now, I've kind of mentioned this already. The church needs to be a safe haven. When people are hurt by words, we need to help each other through that. Do you understand the power of words? I mean, God forbid that we are persecuting people and not even knowing it with our words. James chapter 3, the power that's in the tongue, it's the rudder that steers the massive ship. It's the bit and bridle that steers the 2,000 pound thoroughbred. It's the little spark that sets the world on fire. The power of the tongue and the power of words needs to be taken very seriously and wielded well. And we need to understand that when people say hurtful things against you, that's real. Don't feel sorry for yourself when you're persecuted by people verbally, but acknowledge the fact that it's real and it is painful. You need the Lord and you need the body of Christ to help you through that. Number five, obey God's commands to find joy in persecution. Do you struggle to believe your faith is real? will see your persecution as redemptive and find joy in it, and you'll probably find the assurance of your salvation. Do you know that you have heaven? You know, for those of you who are not suffering any persecution whatsoever and never have, you might not have the true gospel. So evaluate what you believe. Evaluate yourself. Examine yourself and know that you have the true gospel and that you're pursuing the righteousness of Jesus. And then live in the joy of God as he buoys you up and strengthens you through persecution. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word, and we thank you that now we can approach your table. God, we need your gospel, and I know that many in the room have undergone persecution that's a lot more severe than what I've gone through, and so I pray, God, that you would minister to them. I pray that the body of Christ would be a safe haven. It would be what Charles Haddon Spurgeon called the dearest place on earth. So, God, I pray that This would be our refuge, it would be our oasis, and that God, as we find faith in the gospel through this communion time, I pray that we would be buoyed up. In Jesus' name, amen.